This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. That is Matthew 19, 12. That may seem like a super random verse to start the show out today, but it should make sense here in a second. But just wanted to give another quick thank you. I always like to do this at the beginning of my shows just to our donors. We've had a lot of new listeners here recently, and we've gotten a lot of new donations as well. Guys, we are mainly donation supported, and it is straight from our listeners and our fans. Again, we are in the Christmas season as well. So guys, if you want cigars for that special person in your life that likes cigars, we do have Undaunted Life Cigars where the profits and the proceeds go to support the Tim Tebow Foundation and their rescue team to help uh, eradicate child sex trafficking, get kids out of trafficking, help them out afterwards. We also did a small reorder of our green hats because after a lot of you guys came over to our show after I went on Mike Glover's show for the Field Craft Survival, he was wearing our green hat and then I went on Chad Prather's show and he was wearing our green hat and then everyone's like well why are your green hats sold out so we're doing another short run so we're doing a pre-order for that so you guys can go and check that out also one of my favorite sponsors maybe of all time is primal beef so as you guys have heard me talk about before I'm experimenting with carnivore I'm eating way more meat as part of my normal diet so I'm kind of getting just to doing like meats and fruits and maybe just a little bit of other stuff here and there and I just have not had better beef from a better farm and a better operation than primal beef we've had some other sponsors and we've had some other people that didn't end up sponsoring the show that tried to sponsor the show and they sent us some stuff and it just wasn't consistent but primal beef has provided the most consistent beef for what we use here in our house. So I eat steaks just about every day. Their ground is fantastic. They have like these hot dogs that they've made with their beef as well. I'll cut those up and put it in my eggs. It's just a fantastic operation. I had Sean Glass on the show about a month ago. Uh, He's partnered with Jocko Willink in this. And so guys, if you have a beef operation that you want to support, or if you need beef delivered to your house, or if you're not one of those people that buys like a half a cow every year or something like that, definitely try out Primal Beef. The website is in the show notes and you just use the promo code Kyle, that's just my first name, K-Y-L-E, and you'll get 10% off your order. Now, before we get into the quick hitters and what we're doing today, I just want to give a quick thank you to everybody because last week of the podcast has just been absolutely insane. So we set a record for our podcast in terms of the charts for Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So over the weekend, we got to number two on the Spotify charts. So in our category, there's like, you know, a dozen different categories, you know, culture and news and sports and whatever. And in the religion and spirituality category, we were the number two podcast out of all the podcasts, which is absolutely insane. We had been top 10 before, but we got all the way to number two. And then we peaked our peak position on the Apple podcast charts at number seven. And so when you looked at some of the shows that were below us, I mean, people that we love and then, you know, some people that we really don't like at all, but they have enormous platforms and enormous shows. We're just so thankful. And it really has everything to do with my appearance on Mike Glover's podcast. If you have not listened to that interview yet, go to Mike Glover's podcast feed or to his uh, YouTube channel, the Mike Force podcast. You can check out that podcast and you can check out that interview because it was just different for his audience and for the people that kind of are in his world. So a lot of the, you know, law enforcement guys and, you know, veterans and people that get into prepping and stuff like that. And so the stuff that we talked about, the subject matter we talked about, he was so happy and thankful to talk about on his show. He just doesn't get the opportunity to do that very often. And then a lot of you guys that were listeners to that show, you've come over to this show. So you've gotten a little bit of a sense of, okay, well, we got interviews because I interviewed Dan Henderson last week. And then we've got the forging table. Okay, that's kind of like a Bible study thing. So for all you new people to the show, what I typically do a few times a month is I will do an episode like this where I will take an entire subject matter that I'm or philosophy or something I've been thinking about and kind of extrapolate that out and talk about it for a bit. And then I do something called quick hitters. And so quick hitters are just like quick headlines from specific stories that are happening in the world things that I've wanted to comment on in the last you know few weeks or months. And so I kind of give you my quick thoughts on those. So just to welcome you again to the show. And so let's go ahead and get into it today. In the quick hitters, we are going to go ahead and do a few of these because I think I said on the last time I did these that I'm not going to be doing quick hitters for the rest of the year, but <clears throat> we got to sneak in an episode because I had an interview fall through. And so here are the quick hitters that we're going to hit today. And I just added this first one literally this morning. Famous gay YouTuber, 
Shane Dawson and his quote-unquote husband became the latest prominent gay couple to mail order a baby via surrogacy. The overturning of Roe v. Wade already saving tens of thousands of babies from murder. A Florida school district seeing tremendous benefits for students and teachers after banning cell phones. Whiny female college athletes suing their university for not treating them like they're special. A review of federal election donation records revealing that Christianity Today employees only contribute to Democratic political candidates. And prominent pastor David Platt replacing himself as his church's pastor with a black pastor that says it is difficult for him not to just torch all white people, in particular white evangelicals and Christians. Yeah, that's the lineup for today. And we're going to be hitting the third rail on a lot of issues, but the very first thing we're going to get into right now is the Pope. And so for anyone listening to this right now, uh, even if you're new to the show, I am not Catholic. I am proudly Protestant. I think there are massive issues within Catholicism, not only historically, but how they practice Christianity today. You know, guys like John MacArthur and those types of people say that anyone that says they're Catholic is definitely not a Christian and they're going to hell. And I'm I'm certainly not going to go that far. There are certainly Catholics out there that believe that Jesus died specifically for them and they have put their faith in Christ's sacrifice for their sins, which is what saves you. But then they've just added a bunch of crap on top of it. You know, they're talking to a guy in a box and confessing their sins and, you know, that they're doing all these these weird things. So Catholicism it's very strange. It's not super prominent here in Oklahoma, so I haven't grown up around it a whole lot. But there are issues with the office of the Pope. First of all, I do not recognize the office of the Pope. So there are Catholics, and I've sat down with Catholics that have tried to prove to me that there is a straight line between the first Pope, according to them, which is St. Peter, and then they go all the way to Pope Francis, who is the main subject matter of today's podcast, And they say that there is a straight line and every pope along the way has been the pope that was supposed to be there. Now, when you look at some of the popes and some of the things that they've done throughout history, it's hard for you to say that God wanted those people in there because they were the best representation of the Catholic faith. I mean, that's like the understatement of understatements in terms of the show today. Like, of course, some of these popes that were selected by men we're not ordained to be there. I, I don't believe that even for, even for a second. But then we've got Pope Francis. So Pope Francis has been the Pope for quite a while now, but he's incredibly left-leaning. And it's so unbelievably clear that he's left-leaning. And part of the clarity on that is because he's so unclear in his messaging. And what I mean by that is he will say these off-the-cuff comments. And then the Vatican PR team basically comes together and they like, you know, they, they put something together. Oh, that's not really what he said. And they don't really clarify. He's a lot like Andy Stanley in that way, because he'll make comments about homosexuality and gay couples and how the church should, you know, make room for those people in terms of blessing them and blessing these same sex unions while at the same time saying, oh, yeah, but they can't get married. So it's kind of like, OK, they're, they're trying to split the baby. The trans issue, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Pope Francis did a luncheon with a bunch of trannies at the Vatican. Now, I'm totally fine with religious people hanging out with non-religious people or godly people hanging out with non-godly people, if you want to couch it that way, if they're sharing the gospel. But it seems like Pope Francis was just hanging out with trannies and not saying, hey, you need to repent and turn away from this lifestyle of sin that you're leading. So that's problematic. And he's been, he said some progressive things on like climate change and all this kind of stuff. And so every time he seems to open his mouth about a cultural issue or a political issue, it's never conservative. Like it's essentially never conservative. Now, all that stuff might lead you to believe that Pope Francis sucks and no real Christian should take him seriously. And you'd be right. (laughs) He does suck. And I don't think a real Christian should take him seriously. But He said something else here recently that in many ways is more egregious than the other stuff that I've mentioned so far. But in order to get into that, we need to set the scene. So a week or two ago, Pope Francis spoke at the International Theological Commission, which was held at the Vatican. So what this was is this was a gathering of the top 30 or so theologians for the Catholic Church. They took like a big picture, and I think there was, you know, 31 or 32. He gave some scripted remarks, right? So he's kind of given his normal speech or whatever. But then he went off script to address his displeasure with the fact that there were only five female theologians amongst the 30 or so theologians that were gathered in attendance that day. And so he had some quotes that have been reported on, and I'll put the links to those in the show notes. But here's one of the quotes he said, women have a capacity for theological reflection that is different from what men have. 
So that, that's kind of a weird statement. It, it seems kind of oddly unnecessary to say, but you know, whatever. But it does kind of lead you to something that you could call standpoint epistemology. And so John Cooper talked about this in his latest book, but standpoint epistemology is that you basically, you come to knowledge from where you stand in society. So if you're of a particular race or gender or social standing, that's where your epistemology and where your ability to gain knowledge comes from. And that kind of leads into Gnosticism, which is where you, you know, the secret knowledge that you get because of, you know, some revelation or some something to do with your immutable characteristics. But then there was another quote it said this, the church is woman. And if we do not understand who women are, what the theology of a woman is, we will never understand what the church is. Now, again, I'm not Catholic, but that seems deeply odd because I know Catholics, they swear they don't worship Mary until you say something negative about Mary and then they respond as if they worship her. But to say that the church is woman, the church is woman. But the, the thing that's maybe more deeply problematic about this you know, short sentence he said is he says what the theology of a woman is. Because theology is just theology. There's not a theology of woman, a theology of man, a theology of child, a theology. There's, they're not different categories of it. Now, women might read it from a feminine perspective because duh, but there is no separate theology. There's no separate doctrine. But then there was a quote that I'll, again, I'll put this in the show notes. It's from an article from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so Pope Francis said having more women on the commission would help, but the theologians also needed to dedicate more energy to studying the issue and to, this is a direct quote, demasculinize the church. He wants the church, the Catholic church, to go through a demasculinizing process. And that was the quote that obviously caught my eye because we're here to equip men to push back darkness. And obviously I'm not terribly worried about masculinity and culture, uh, you know, having too much of it. I'm certainly worried that we have too little of it in our culture. But again, he's, he's displeased that there's not enough women there. He's displeased that it's not, you know, probably diverse enough or something like that. But then he says, and it's also too masculine. You know, the, the church in and of itself is too manly. And so when I first saw the headline, obviously you need to read the story, not just headline. But when I read the headline and the red story, my initial reaction was like, yeah, I'm not really shocked by this. This isn't really shocking at all since it's coming from Pope Francis. And so the first question that you need to ask yourself about this whole situation is this. Why would Pope Francis make these comments specifically in front of a room full of the most influential and important theologians in the Catholic Church? And there's an answer, and this is it. Because he wants to change Catholic orth orthopraxy. Okay, so orthopraxy is correct religious practice. Okay, so it's a big word to just say, hey, you're doing the right religious stuff. And how do you change Catholic orthopraxy? You change Catholic tradition. And how do you change Catholic tradition? You change Catholic doctrine. And how do you change Catholic doctrine? Well, you make sure that your theologians are progressives. And how do you make sure that your theologians are progressives? You stamp out any dissent from conservatives. And that's seemingly what is taking place in the Catholic Church right now. And we have even evidence about this recently. Just about a month ago, Pope Francis fired Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, because Strickland was an outspoken critic of Pope Francis and his left-leaning opinions on social issues, and most notably, his apparent inability to condemn homosexual lifestyles. And, you know, maybe this is going a little bit too far. Certainly, it'll be too far for some of you. But I think the reason why this particular pope is so sensitive about the homosexual lifestyles issue is not just because the the winds of culture have changed but maybe perhaps the pope and his buddies at the vatican you know the members of the lavender mafia are all homosexuals themselves is that possible i mean we've seen a lot of things come out about homosexuality within the priesthood and obviously pedophilic homosexuality and different things like that would it shock anybody that all of these quote-unquote celibate men are not actually into women, but they're into men themselves? Perhaps, but I'll digress from there. So why do I think that these comments about him actively wanting to demasculinize the church, why do I think that those are more egregious than some of the comments that he's made about gay marriage and transgenderism and climate change and other things? 
It's because a more feminine disposition leads to more left-leaning viewpoints on social, cultural, and political issues. So Jordan Peterson has talked about this on his show before, but some of the best predictors of liberalization or of liberal standpoints on particular issues is effeminacy. Now, you can take that to mean a bunch of different things, but just think about it just anecdotally in your life. To the men in in your life that are the most masculine, whatever that means to you, right? So uh, they're they're the most masculine looking, acting, and the, the things that they do are all kind of very masculine, very manly. How many of those people are like big Joe Biden people? Like, like how many of those people are just going out of their way to tell you how much they love AOC? How many of those guys are, you know, picketing outside of the Supreme Court anytime there's something that doesn't go the way of the left? That's not really something that you see very often. It, have you ever thought about that? Because apparently that goes to more of who you are. And, and this gets into the big five personality traits where it's like, okay, if you're higher in trait openness, then you, you know, you're probably more artistic and you're, you're more of kind of a big thinker. If you're higher in neuroticism, you're just going to be overwhelmed by, by negative thoughts and that those things are going to control you. And all those things go into how you act in culture and how you act in a family, right? And so all that is very, very important. So his effeminacy is going to directly lead to more left-leaning moves inside of the Catholic Church. But as we wrap up the discussion here on Pope Francis, why is Pope Francis's effeminacy so problematic and dangerous? I think that's something that we need to really reckon with. One reason is because he is certainly paving the way for a more woke pope than him, and he's perhaps eventually paving the way for the first female pope. Now, obviously me saying, oh, there's going to be a more woke Pope down the line. You know, that's pretty easy to see. That's not really going out on a limb. But people are really like, Kyle, that's crazy. Oh, female Pope, that could never happen. To that person, I would say, well, why? Why would it never happen? There certainly are the winds of change in culture. And the church writ large, not just the Catholic church, but Catholicism, Protestantism, we're all downstream of culture now. That's how we've been acting for a long time. And so you already have uh, female uh, bishops at different denominations, and there's already movements to have female clergy and female priests inside the Catholic Church. And so fast forward 100 years, maybe it's probably not going to take nearly that long, but let's just take a go a century in the future. There will very, very likely be female Catholic priests. And if there are female Catholic priests and the people that choose the Pope, right, that, that group of people, they are all trying to communicate something with the Pope that they're choosing. And you're telling me that those men and women wouldn't come together and put a female forward to be the first female Pope. And I mean, progressives all over the planet would just be, uh, they would just be elated, which should kind of give you an idea guys that if uh, atheistic leftist progressives really, really like something that your particular church is doing, that's probably a good hint that it's not biblical. Just, just saying. But also a reason why his effeminacy is so problematic and dangerous is because atheistic regimes, so let's look at the, you know, socialist and communistic regimes of the 20th century, for example, they can only gain power if the men of that culture are too feeble and weak to resist. One of my favorite things that Eric Metaxas, who has written a lot, but one of my favorite things that he's ever written about is he wrote about the 12,000 or so Christian pastors that were in Germany at the, during the time of the rise of the Third Reich, of the rise of the Nazi party. And he said, you know, according to him and his study, that if a few thousand more of these pastors would have actually advocated against the Nazi party, they would have never risen to power. They would have never risen to prominence. There is no Holocaust. There is no World War II, at least not in the way that we saw it. A few thousand more pastors that would have, you know, been, been okay with being known for what they're against. Because again, a lot of these people, I don't want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. Well, dummy, every time you communicate you're for something, you communicate that you're against something else. And this idea that we are supposed to be outside of a culture entirely, outside of politics entirely, is ridiculous. And again, it's the question that I've asked that you've heard me ask before. So when someone says, hey, you know, Christians don't need to be involved in the culture war, it's like, okay, so you only want atheists to control culture? You only want atheists to control Hollywood and entertainment. You only want atheists to control politics. You only want atheists to control the education system. Is that what you're communicating? Uh, well, 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 that's what you're saying. If you don't want the people of God in those arenas, 
it will be filled by someone else. It's a void. It's a vacuum that's got to be filled by someone else. So as we see this long march inside the institutions to liberalize and progressivize everything, this is going to lead to socialistic and communistic takeovers because that's exactly the directionality that history has taught us. Because again, if you have a whole bunch that, that that's why leftists are so nervous about right wing people, conservatives and firearms. Because if you're strong, you have a firearm, you know how to use it and you're willing to use it. That makes the leftist, communistic, socialist, socialistic governments very, very nervous. Because one of the first things that you do if you want to take over a populace in a totalitarian fashion is you get rid of their ability to defend themselves. In our modern context, that would be something like an AR-15. That would be something like the magazines that go into that particular firearm, right? And so I think that's a problem that the Pope is certainly aiding in. My last point here in terms of the, the dangerous nature of the Pope and, and his effeminacy is, and this is, I guess, in some ways the most practical reason of all of them, is because over a billion people on the planet at least purportedly take Pope Francis's words, opinions, and declarations seriously. There's something like 1.1 or 1.2 billion people on the planet right now that categorize themselves as Catholic. And so when Pope Francis speaks or does anything, they're paying attention. Now, some people are just checking the Catholic box, like they don't even believe in God, but they'll say they're Catholic. It's kind of one of those silly things. It's kind of like there's a lot of discussion about Judaism right now, and rightfully so because of what happened on October the 7th. But a lot of people that are culturally Jewish, they don't even believe in God. They don't even go to synagogue. They don't even pray. It's just, you know, an identity for them. Same thing with Catholicism. Like, I don't think Joe Biden, like, considering the things that he says and does, he's certainly not a Christian, but he identifies as a Catholic. And it's like, Okay, well, uh, even if you believe in all of Catholic doctrine, that means you can't kill children. It means you can't support gay marriage. You basically can't be for any of the things that he is for, being the most prominent Catholic example right now. But when you have this many people that are sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for the Pope to say something, he's going to be able to change people's viewpoints. Because again, people don't read their Bibles. People don't actually think that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. And so they're just going to go uh, based on what their figurehead says. So in the Catholic Church, that's Pope Francis. For Protestant churches, it might be an Andy Stanley or a Stephen Furtick or a, uh, I don't know, pick, pick a prominent pastor that has said and done things that are like completely outside of orthodoxy. So there are people specifically in Andy Stanley's church that are just going to go with whatever Andy Stanley says about homosexuality and transgenderism. They're not going to look to the Bible. Because I think I'll probably mess up the quote, but it's like, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the word out loud. But again, we just want to go to these people that went to Bible college or some of them like Joel Osteen didn't even go to Bible college, you know, shock of all shocks, but they just want to listen to these people say things that make them feel better and also make them acquiesce more to culture because that'll mean their life is easier. That's a big key here that no one really thinks about. It should be difficult to be a Christian. Now. Even with the crap happening in culture, it's still really, really easy to be a Christian in America. Because as of right now, there's not people that are kicking your doors down looking for copies of the New Testament that you might be hiding under your floorboards. That's not really something that's happening right now, but that's happening in other places around the world. It certainly is. And so if you have these things happening, what you need is a populace that is ready for that. Christians should be ready to be put under persecution, but we're not because we bought the cultural Christianity lie, the colloquial Christianity lie that if you become a Christian, everything just works out. Name it and claim it, right? You're just going to pray to the universe and it's going to, those prayers are going to attach to other like posy vibes inside the universe. And it's just going to rain down blessings on your bank account. We bought the lie. We bought a hook, line and sinker. And so when Pope Francis tells you something, or says something like, hey, we should really demasculinize the church, that jives directly with culture that is trying to demasculinize every part of culture. Toxic masculinity and some such, right? If he says, yeah, we really should try to understand transgender people and, and you know, just kind of accept them for who they are and who God made them to be, those types of comments, well, yeah, that jives directly with culture, so it's going to make it easier to live inside this culture. But again, my message to all you Christians here is if your Christian walk is super, super easy, you're probably not doing it right. Talking about orthopraxy, 
You're probably probably not practicing right. You're probably not bristling up against the places and people that you need to bristle up against. That is not licensed for you to go out and be a dickhead and just to like literally take your Bible and beat people over the head with it. But it's being able to take a tactful approach to these things in culture that God hates. And Pope Francis is doing us no favors. Why? Because he's an effeminate pansy. All right, we're going to get into the quick hitters here. And again, this first one I added this morning because I'm literally sitting there on the john this morning taking care of my initial business. And this pops up and I'm like, great, just another example. So famous gay YouTuber Shane Dawson and his quote unquote husband became the latest prominent gay couple to mail order a baby via surrogacy. So this is according to Pop Crave on Twitter. Obviously, everyone follows Pop Crave, right? But this was it. It was a picture of this guy and his you know, supposed husband and they're holding twins. Okay, and the caption said YouTuber Shane Dawson and Rylan Adams have welcomed their twin boys via a surrogate, which obviously they welcome twin boys via surrogacy because it's two men. You can't make a baby. Right. So you may be asking yourself, who is Shane Dawson? Because I had no idea who this person was, but apparently he has over 19 million subscribers to his YouTube channel. So he's very prominent in YouTube. But also there's some things about him that people may not know which will kind of give you an idea of who this person is and whether or not he should ever have a kid around him ever. So in a video in 2013, he explained to the the person that he was talking to on a show called Shane and Friends why he Googled the term naked baby. This was his direct quote. I went to Google and I didn't want to see child porn. I just wanted to see, let me pretend I'm a pedophile for a second. So I typed in naked baby. First of all, I don't understand why anybody would be turned on by that, but they were sexy. I'm kidding. So he's just making light and making a joke about pedophilia, specifically naked babies. Now, I've made some irreverent jokes in my life. I've said some things trying to get that next laugh, that next big guttural laugh, and it just fell flat. And I went a you know, step or two too far. But this isn't a different category entirely. This is a homosexual person, and if anybody's heard homosexuals talk about this, like they don't see pedophilia in the same way that straight people do. They just don't. And that's that's enough to get me and other people canceled just saying that. But you will have gay people that just say, yeah, I mean, there's there's tons of relationships between older gay men and younger gay boys. Like that's just like a thing that happens, right? But specifically in this particular case, you have a prominent gay person saying that he went to the internet and typed in gay baby, or sorry, not gay baby, but naked baby. Like that's problematic and it should be. But in addition to him being an open and proud homosexual and potentially a pedophile, apparently he's also into having sex with animals. Yeah. Because in 2015, he said this one time I laid my cat down on her back. I moved her little chicken legs spread open or whatever. I came all over my cat. It was like my first sexual experience. I was also like 19. So this guy is homosexual. He has made light and made jokes about pedophilia. So would it shock anybody if he's had pedophilic relationships or sexual experiences in his life? Certainly wouldn't surprise me. And he had sex with his cat and came all over his cat. So in total, this dude would not have passed a background check to even foster a kid, much less adopt a child. But hey, Let's let him and his husband buy a kid, buy two kids, right? What could possibly go wrong? So here's my big takeaway on this story. Surrogacy is human trafficking. It's sick and it's depraved. Now, I'm certainly not the first person to point out that surrogacy is human trafficking. That's not a unique idea. But people that have said that are absolutely correct. Because what is the process? You basically go to a catalog of women. And you say to yourself, well, we're going to swirl our sperm together and then we're going to have that injected into, you know, this woman or they're going to inject it. You know, they're going to marry it with an egg and then put it inside a woman. You know, however the process goes in that particular thing. And they swirl the sperm, right? So they don't know which one's the father, right? Because, oh, it's so cute, right? But they're choosing the woman it goes into. They're choosing the egg donor. They're choosing the hospital. And guess what? Everyone's getting paid everyone's getting paid. So the hospitals are obviously turning a blind eye to the potential moral ramifications of this because they're making a crap ton of money off of every step of the process. 
and all these agencies that are part of it, they're all making a crap ton of money. It's human trafficking. That's exactly what this is. They didn't create those two young boys. They bought them. Now, I talk about this in much more detail. Go back to episode 426 of this podcast. It's called The Ugliness of Gay Adoption and Surrogacy. So in that particular episode, I talked about this story where there was a gay couple that had adopted these uh, brothers. And not only were they raping and sodomizing these boys, they were selling them to be raped and sodomized by all their other gay friends. So they were running a gay pedophile ring, right? And so obviously I'll make the point now in the same point that I made then that doesn't mean that every gay couple that adopts or or takes over children via surrogacy is going to do that. Obviously that's not going to happen, but it opens up that door certainly because of some of the things that I've already talked about, because the reality is, is that babies, I hate deserve language. So I'll just throw that out there, especially to the new people to the show. I hate when people are like, well, you deserve this and I deserve this. No, but I'll tell you what a baby deserves. A baby deserves a mother, a father, and a household that upholds God's design and goodness. Like at the most minimum basic level, that's exactly what a baby deserves. Because there are situations because of the fall that do not allow for a mother and father to be present. Maybe the mother died during childbirth, but the the baby lived. Maybe the father knocked up the chick and then took off. Maybe someone died, maybe whatever. There's there's a myriad of circumstances where a child does not grow with, with mother and father in the home. But the best outcomes for children, and this is where the sociological data always catches up with what we know from thousands of years of Christian history and, and Christian practice, is that the best outcome and the best household for a child to grow up in is a household with a present mother, a present father, and they go to church. So that gets into the upholding of God's design and goodness. Now, that doesn't even get into the data. Is it it a good mom? Is it a doting mother? Is it a good father? Is it like a really present and and all the way there father? Uh, Do they go to the right kind of church? Do they go to the church that exposits the, the scripture and really upholds the gospel above everything else? It doesn't even get into all that. Mother, father, present, and they all go to church as a family. And so you have a situation like this. Where these two young boys, these, these poor young boys, they've been adopted so that these gay men can have an accessory to walk around with. It's like a purse for a woman. That's what this is. Because you can obviously see, you know, with this guy who makes a lot of money off his YouTube channel, do you think they're going to be the ones getting up in the middle of the night feeding the child? No. They're going to have, you know, women that come in and do that for them. They're going to have women that come and take care of those children that are not their mother. These men paid for the right to be able to steal motherhood away from the surrogate. Now, the surrogate in this situation is not a victim by any stretch of the imagination because she made the decision, the conscious decision, to take the money from these gay men so that she could carry two babies, provide for them with her nutrition and nourishment inside of her body, And then the moment they're outside of her body, very likely via cesarean section, the babies just go away. They likely didn't put the babies on the mother so that it would attach themselves to her. You know, all these benefits that come to a baby by being with their mother outside the womb, gone. Doctors just walk the baby from one room over to the other. And then these homosexual dudes just, they, they get the right to sit there and take the pictures with their babies. And, you know, these morons took pictures like the babies in the, in the little, you know, baby holder or whatever. I can't think of the name of it right now. And they're laying down covered with like a hospital blanket. Like they just went through labor. <laughs> so they get to have the cute pictures for social media. And we're just left wondering how long until these young kids are going to be taken advantage of. And even if those are both doting parents and they never do anything sexually to those boys, they're going to be growing up in a household with two fathers when a mother is necessary and needed. And we can also assume that these men are not going to be raising these these young children up to, to be able to worship God. And all we can hope for is that the gospel penetrates the hearts of these men, that they repent and turn away from this lifestyle, and that also the gospel penetrates the hearts of these children at some point as well. It's just an ugly and depraved situation. I hate it, but had to talk about it. 
All right, next quick hitter here. The overturning of Roe v. Wade already saving tens of thousands of babies from murder. So this is according to Fox News. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, at least 30,000 babies have been born that would have otherwise been aborted, according to a new study published this month. I think it was actually last month. The 32,000 babies were born in states that enacted some form of abortion restriction, according to the study conducted by the Institute of Labor Economics that looked at the effects of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Jobs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which returned the issue of abortion to the states. Our primary analysis indicates that in the first six months of 2023, births rose by an average of 2.3% in states enforcing total abortion bans compared to a control group of states where abortion rights remained protected, amounting to approximately 32,000 additional annual births resulting from abortion bans, according to the study. So right to the big takeaway on this one with the rest of these, we'll, we'll probably just go right to the big takeaway. Big takeaway on this one is tens of thousands of babies to the glory of God, are alive outside of their mother's wombs today that otherwise would have been ripped to shreds in that same womb previously. And Republicans are tripping all over themselves trying to moderate on the abortion issue. I don't get it. And and not just Republicans. Let me add Christians to that as well. There are plenty of, plenty of left-leaning congregations and churches and Christians that are trying to do everything to moderate on the abortion issue, to try to find some mythical third way, right? They might as well try to find a pink and purple unicorn. There is no third way on abortion. It's either a child that is alive that is worthy of our protection, or it is a meaningless clump of cells that feels nothing as you're sucking it through a vacuum tube into a trash can. There's nothing in between. So, to the Republicans and Christians out there, why are you not just standing up and shouting this particular study from the rooftops and saying, 32,000, 32,000 children are alive today that otherwise would have been murdered? Because there's a lot of focus right now, and for good reason, on the 1,200 or so Israelis, Jews, that were murdered by Hamas at the beginning of October. Then again, I did an entire episode on it. I taught my entire Sunday school on that. It is something that we should think about. But let's just look at the numbers. 1,200 people brutally murdered versus 32,000 people that would have been brutally murdered. Like, what if we could live in a parallel universe, which we can't, but, you know, come with me for a little bit. What if we lived in a parallel universe where the Hamas attacks in Israel on the 7th of October this year, could have been prevented. And we know without a doubt, or, you know, in general, in the range, that around 1,200 people would have been saved. Can you imagine the headlines? Certainly right-leaning people or Zionists or whatever the people that you're into, Jews would have been like, this is great. 1,200 of us were going to be murdered, ripped limb from limb, and we weren't. This This is a big win. Why are Republicans and Christians doing that right now with 32,000 babies that are here now existing outside of their mother's wombs? I'll never understand it. And part of it, again, is because Christians have accepted the placement of being downstream from culture. Again, you don't need to be a jerk about the abortion issue, but if you can't stand on the correct moral side of the abortion issue, what subject matter should I trust you with? So to these squishy Republicans, that have said that they're pro-life and yet they're trying to advocate for pro-choice opinions and pro-choice stances, I'm sorry, I'm not going to trust you with the economy. I'm not going to trust you with the border. I'm not going to trust you with international diplomacy because you can't even get the subject matter of life right. So my encouragement to all the Christians and Republicans out here is be super proud of this. Celebrate it. Celebrate it more loudly than a touchdown by your favorite team, then a knockout by your favorite fighter. Celebrate this, because this is a big deal. 32,000 babies are here today, and that is a win for everybody. All right, next quick hitter here. A Florida school district sees tremendous benefits for students and teachers after banning cell phones. So this is according to GovTech.com. New rules that require cell phones to be silent and tucked away in backpacks all day made Sarah Spates... 
how do you say her name? Spate? Spate. I'll just go with Spate. Sarah Spate's classroom, a better place this semester. Students were more focused on lessons, the Boone High School teacher said, and more willing to engage in discussions. In her view, Orange County Public Schools' ban on phones during the school day, a rule in effect even during lunch, has been a four-month success story. The learning change in the classroom is remarkable. Students are engaged because they're not getting notifications in their pockets, said Spate, who teaches ninth grade English and advanced placement literature. I would predict that we're going to see a positive impact on test scores for the schools that have implemented this with consistency. Educators and school leaders across Central Florida's largest school district report similar benefits, though they don't yet have the data to back up their sense of success. They also wanted to limit distractions in class, encourage in-person communication among students, and tamp down on what many studies say are screen time's detrimental impacts on children's mental health. I absolutely, absolutely love this story. My big takeaway on this one is every school in the country should institute this rule immediately. There is literally no good argument against it. None. Because I've tried to put myself there mentally. Okay, let's say I thought we should have more cell phones in schools or the same amount. How would I argue against something like this? And I couldn't come up with a good reason. I just couldn't. And you could basically go back to what did children do before this century, before cell phones were ubiquitous and, you know, elementary school kids had cell phones. Like every kid was fine. Well, I, I say that, you, you know what I mean? Every kid was, was fine not having a cell phone. Every, every kid made it through the day and made it to the bus and made it home fine. Like parents that needed to get hold of their kid for whatever reason, you know what they did? They called the school. You know, if there was an emergency, uh, hey, uh, your, your, your uncle, my brother had, had a heart attack. Um, uh, can you please call Mrs. Jones's class? I need to get my son out today. Uh, we need to go to the hospital. Like that's all it took as opposed to furiously texting your kid while they're trying to learn, right? And so the, the educational outcomes in America, and many of you know this, the educational outcomes in American schools is just destitute. It is horrific. And that is in contrast to the unbelievably high amount of funding we give to education. We constantly get these teachers and administrators that complain about the funding that they don't have for education. And it's like, there are countries that have way less money per capita going to fund education for their students that have way higher educational outcomes. So obviously there's something there and the problem isn't money. Because again, is, is the problem that kids don't have the latest iPad in their class? Or is the problem that we're focusing on crappy modalities that don't end up leading our children to be able to be successful in the classroom? And you also have to remember, Phone manufacturers and social media companies, they set out to create devices and apps that prevent children from being able to concentrate. That's the entire point. Because if you can concentrate on something for a long time, you know what you're not going to do? Doom scroll. And look, I'm, I'm susceptible to this as well. Every now and then I'll get to a video on Instagram or TikTok or something like that. And it's like, oh, this video is like three minutes long. Skip. I don't even know what the video is about, but I'm not going to watch it. Don't have time for that. Skip, skip. Go to the next one. So imagine being a child. I'm a grown man and I have trouble with it sometimes, right? I mean, I've got a pretty good hack system that, that you know, keeps me from dedicating my entire life to my little box that I keep in my pocket. But what about a 12-year-old? I remember when I was in college, I went and did some leadership training for the elementary school students and there were fifth graders that had, like at the time, Palm Pilots were still a thing. Fifth graders? Like how old's a fifth grader? who do they need to get a hold of? Who do they need to text? Who do they need to be in connection with at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday, right? They're like 10 years old. What do they need? And again, if you're the, if you're the school system, if you're the teacher, if you're the principal and you're allowing them to have these devices, you can't be shocked when they can't concentrate in class. You can't be shocked when they don't do well on exams. You, You can't be shocked when they forgot to do something because they didn't actually hear you say it because they were playing a game on their phone or sending a Snapchat or doing whatever, right? But the other thing, the other kind of way around this, like if your school and your community isn't going to institute something like this, I hope it, I hope it be, you know, catches fire, but who the heck knows? The way around this is parents out there actually being parents and not getting their kids smartphones. I've talked about this a lot. Your child doesn't need it. And we can get into the discussion about 
The fact that pedophiles know how to use these smartphones to get to your kid, and that's an important conversation. The fact that there's porn and murder videos and murder porn videos that your kids can access with a few clicks, right? All that's something that's important to talk about in terms of their cell phones. But if they're at school and they have a cell phone, how in the world do you expect them not to look at it? And again, to the parents, it's just like, I want to make sure I can communicate with my kid in case something goes wrong. You can. Call the school. Like most parents now have their teacher's phone number, right? My kid's in pre-K three. My wife has the teacher's number. She can text and call the teacher in the middle of the day, which again, is kind of bad for the, the modalities of the class and making sure everything can kind of move forward. But you have ways to get a hold of your child. So if your school's not going to do this, you be the parent. Make sure they don't have their phone at school. Make sure that you know you have it locked down where it can't, the apps can't even be accessed during particular hours or something like that. All that is something that you can do. But also, go to your school boards, go to your private schools, go, go to those places and advocate for them to put something like this in place. I've heard of schools around here that do like one day a week is like cell phone free Wednesdays. And it's like, that's it? Cell phone free Wednesdays? Like, why do one day? Like zero days makes more sense than one day. Like you should just have a blanket ban on these things because they're not aiding the educational process. All right, next quick hitter here. Whiny female college athletes sue their university for not treating them like they're special. All right, let's go to Fox News. 32 female athletes at the University of Oregon have filed a lawsuit against the school claiming that it is not following Title IX laws. A 115-page suit filed by Bailey and Glasser says the school has deprived, and this is a quote now, has been depriving women of equal treatment and benefits, equal athletic aid, and equal opportunities, unquote. The suit cites an investigative report by the Oregonian in July that says the volleyball team practices and plays home games in a city park and uses public restrooms with no doors on the stalls. City officials told the outlet that the stalls do not have doors due to fears that people will use drugs in the bathroom. Players often feel unsafe to use the bathroom facilities as there are often vagrants inside or around the restroom building. The student athletes have witnessed these vagrants injecting intravenous drugs or using crack cocaine, the complaint said. The team was unable to practice last week because someone died near the public courts, according to beach volleyball captain Ashley Schroeder. We'll come back to that. Meanwhile, as the volleyball team practices under those conditions, the football team has unbelievably better treatment than the school gives any of its female student athletes. While the men's football team members receive brand new, exclusive, personally tailored gear, the women's beach volleyball team members share a limited amount of tattered gear handed down for years that often does not fit. The complaint reads, oh, their clothes don't fit, guys. Guys, come on. So, first of all, when you see this story covered, almost none of the outlets put this very special word in there, beach volleyball. No one knew before the story that beach volleyball as a collegiate sport was even a thing. We've all seen indoor volleyball played on a basketball court. We've all seen that. Most schools have that, even small schools. But beach volleyball. Because when you read the story, I'll go back to the top here, when it talks about, oh, they have to practice their home games in a city park, and you're like, wow, this volleyball team has to practice outdoors in a park? Yeah, because it's a beach volleyball team. How many beach volleyball courts have you seen indoors in a nice facility? Exactly zero? Yes, because there are exactly zero in existence, right? And so, first of all, isn't a story like this a further indictment of the failure of Democrat-run cities? I mean, they, they can't keep their cities from turning into filthy, wretched dumps. Because again, this is Oregon. This is about as blue and left-leaning as it gets. And of course, they, they don't really have realistic policies in place for uh, people that have mental disorders or addictions that, and they're living on the streets and all that. And so this is just a further indictment of that. But let's go to some big takeaways. I have several here on this story. The first one, this lawsuit, lawsuit should be lapped out of court, obviously. And all 32 female athletes listed in the lawsuit should be mandated by the court to take an economics 101 course. I think this would help solve a lot of the problems that they're having. Okay. And this kind of goes right into the next big takeaway is you can't expect equal outputs with unequal inputs. So everyone loves, you know, even, you know, uh, professors at universities do this as well. You know, why aren't we getting as much, you know, stuff in our random like literature department as the football team's getting? Why do they get all these cool new buildings, cool new whatever? Because the football team's making the university money. Like, 
how is this difficult to understand? So the University of Oregon football team brings in tens of millions of dollars of revenue every year, even if they suck. Tens of millions of dollars from TV deals to rev shares from the conference that they play in to uh, the, the revenue generated by the sale of gear, by ticket sales, by hot dog sales during, during the home games and all that. And they're playing like five or six games at home and they're still able on a yearly basis to bring in tens of millions of dollars. And the other thing that people don't really realize, and I've talked about this before, is that inside of athletic departments, typically there are one or two sports in an entire athletic department that are operating in the black. It's typically football and men's basketball. There are random schools like Oklahoma State's wrestling program. They operate in the black. I'm sure uh, Cal State Fullerton uh, baseball team uh, operates in the black. But for the most part, every single sport outside of men's basketball and football is operating in the red. And so, in reality, these women would be getting nothing. Apparently, they're getting stuff that is just so bad and handed down. They wouldn't even have a budget if not for the men's football team. They wouldn't even have a budget. Yeah, they're going to get some state funds and some federal funds and things like that, but they wouldn't have jack crap, okay? So again, you have unequal inputs. Why do you expect equal outputs with the people that are putting so much more in? My last big takeaway on this is no one is forcing these young ladies to play volleyball, beach volleyball, for the University of Oregon. This is my biggest complaint. Teachers that complain about how much they get paid. Uh, these young ladies complaining about, you know, the, the facilities and complaining about all these things. Uh, MMA fighters that are complaining about, well, I could make more money if I could get more sponsors. and over. You signed on the dotted line to do your job. When you were offered that teaching position, you took it. When you were offered that spot on the beach volleyball team in Oregon, you took it. When you were offered that contract by the UFC, even though you could have made more money over in Bellator, you took it. Who are you complaining to? Why are you yelling at the sky? I don't understand it. Yes, I could feel bad for your situation. I could wish, yeah, you know what? Uh, These gals, they they train real hard, even though no one really watches a beach volleyball except for once every four years and mainly just to watch girls in bikinis play beach volleyball because that's why people watch it in the Summer Olympics, right? Like, I'm not saying anything that's completely crazy. I'm not really, like, blazing a trail here. But, like, you're, you're playing a sport that doesn't matter that no one really cares to watch on a regular basis, and you're getting to go to school to play that sport. And you chose to. And not all these girls are on full-ride scholarships, but they're getting something to go to school there, right? What are you complaining about? This is your decision, right? And guess what? There's a really easy way that you could not have to deal with that situation anymore. Not have to deal with playing in city parks and dealing with all the homeless people and watching them shoot up and in the place that you chose to live. You could move. You could drop out of school. You could transfer to another school. I don't know how many other schools do beach volleyball. I'm sure there's at least one more. Is it a better city? Is it a better situation? Do they get better funding? Move. These people that complain about the states that they live in. Oh, I can't believe this. Can't believe it. Move. Like you live in the greatest country in the history of the world that provides you the most amount of flexibility and movement possible. And you're not going to move. I'm sorry. I just don't feel bad for you. Our next quick hitter here, a review of federal election donation records revealing that Christianity Today employees only contribute to Democratic political candidates. So this is according to the Daily Wire. The media has long framed Christianity Today, founded by Billy Graham in 1956, as America's most influential Christian news outlet. The Washington Post, for instance, regularly describes it as evangelicalism's flagship magazine, as does the New York Times. A review of federal election records, however, indicates that the views of the magazine's leadership and staff may be far out of step with ordinary evangelicals. Between 2015 and 2022, nine Christianity Today employees made 73 political donations. All of them went to Democrats. So, included in this story, which I will put in the show notes, I think it's by Megan Basham at the Daily Wire. This includes executives. All the the executives, if they're donating, they're donating to the Democratic Party. This also includes editors. And so the, the story actually does talk about this a little bit. It is egregious that editors at a supposed publication are allowing themselves to donate in a political campaign that they're covering. That's a massive issue. It's a massive conflict of interest. Because if you donate to a particular political candidate, 
you will invariably write about them and describe them and, you know, position them in a certain way. And it's probably going to make them look better, right? Because you want to be on the winning side. And so my big takeaway on this story is that Christianity Today is not a Christian publication. I don't know for how long it hasn't been a Christian publication, but this just further proves my point. And so part of the reason, this goes back to what I was saying earlier, if you are pro-choice, which basically means you're pro-abortion, you're pro the murder of babies, you're not a Christian. I did an episode back, I can't remember, but it was episode 417 called, There is No Such Thing as a Pro-Choice Christian, because there isn't. Because you cannot support that and say that you understand the gospel and that the gospel is for you. It's not possible. But the Christianity today has given us hints about this really leftward lurch for years. Back on episode 110 of this podcast, I'm calling back to a bunch of old school episodes, but back 110, that was like in 2017 or 2018, I did one called Christianity Today Attacks Trump. And this was an article of, uh, this was a podcast about an article that they wrote where they were attacking Donald Trump for something that he didn't deserve to be attacked for. And again, I've gone on record saying I think Trump says and does a lot of really, really stupid things, some of them unforgivably stupid. But what he was being attacked for by Christianity Today made no sense. And this was kind of that first time where you saw the, the pearl clutching from these holier-than-thou Christians that apparently understand the culture better than you, even though they're trying to change even the words meanings that we've all understood for thousands of years to mean some other things so that they can better acquiesce with culture. But yeah, you try to unweave that sentence a little bit later. But this publication has Christianity in the name but it couldn't even be recognized by the people that started it back in the 50s. Like, most of the articles that are released by Christianity Today, like, Billy Graham could not even have fathomed the headline, much less the content of what's being written. And so, when I saw this story of a few weeks back, I just laughed, because it's not shocking. Just like the comments made by Pope Francis the not being shocking at all, this makes total sense. You can see the editorial choices and bend of the stories put out by Christianity Today and the things that are covered and how they're covered and think to yourself, yeah, of course they're not donating to Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump. Like that, that wouldn't make any sense. It would actually be more shocking if this study came out and it said, you know, all the executives for Christianity Today only gave to Republican political candidates. Like that would have been truly, truly shocking. But in this case, it's just not. All right, last quick hitter here. Pastor David Platt replacing himself at his church with a black pastor that says it is difficult for him, quote, not to just torch all white people, in particular, white evangelicals and Christians. Okay, so this is according to church leaders, and this was written back in September. McLean Bible Church held a church family meeting to vote Mike Kelsey, the current NBC, NBC is McLean Bible Church, Montgomery County location pastor, to be the church's new lead pastor alongside David Platt. So go ahead and insert your, you know, the office references where Michael Scott and Jim Halpert were co-managers of Dunder Mifflin Scranton for a while there. So go ahead and insert that. I don't know exactly how you could be a lead pastor alongside another lead pastor, but I'll digress. Go back to the story here. A video of Kelsey saying that there are times he feels like torching all white people, particularly white evangelicals and Christians, resurfaced earlier this week, again, back in September. Kelsey made the comment three years ago while he was on an episode of Jeannie Allen's podcast titled Understanding Your Role in Racial Reconciliation, just weeks after a video showed that George Floyd was murdered by Minneapolis police officers. Again, I would quibble with the word murdered there because, as I've talked about before, George Floyd overdosed while in police custody, but that's at least what the, the, the website put here, so that's why I read it that way. Back to the, uh, the article here. Alan asked Kelsey to share what it felt like to experience these last few weeks. This is a quote from him. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm done, Kelsey said. It's difficult for me sometimes not to just torch all white people, in particular, white evangelicals and Christians, unquote. Kelsey shared, that what keeps him from wanting to torch all white people is a combination of several things, including just meeting and being in community with so many white brothers and sisters and looking at the type of work there that you're doing and other people are doing. So here's my big takeaway on this one. Actually, I have a couple. Here's the first one. These comments from Mike Kelsey are disqualifying for him as a pastor. 100%. Now, if you immediately bristle up against the comment that I just made, I want you to do me a favor. Because some of you are like, wait a minute, Kyle, you can't disqualify anyone from being a pastor. You don't even know. You don't even know this guy. Sure, fine. Do this for me. Switch out the word white with black 
and then read the quote and tell me you feel the same way. Okay, so everybody on this podcast knows like Joby Martin's one of my best friends. He happens to be a white pastor down in Florida and he kind of has a country accent. So imagine Joby Martin of Church of 1122 saying this quote. He never would in a million years say this, but just imagine him saying this the next time you, you, you know, tune in or go to his church to hear one of his sermons. Sometimes I'm just like, I'm done. It's difficult for me sometimes, not just to torch all black people, in particular, black evangelicals and Christians. Can you imagine? Because Joby Martin should be way more prominent, way more famous than he is, in my personal opinion. You know, that will likely change here before too very much longer. But can you imagine the international headlines? Florida pastor says he wants to torch all black people. Florida pastor, prominent Florida evangelical, says it's hard for him to not just torch all black people. In that exact moment, it would be de- his job and his ministry would be demanded of him, and rightfully so. And no one, there's not a conservative podcaster or you know, blogger or anybody that would come to his defense. Because again, let me just read it as it would sound if we switched the races. Sometimes I'm just like I'm done. It's difficult for me sometimes not to just torch all black people, in particular, black evangelicals and Christians. No one's coming to his aid. Rick Warren's not going to make a a Twitter video like Craig Rochelle's not going to come out and uh, record a podcast saying he defends. No one's coming to his aid. Matt Chandler, his good buddy, no one's going to come to his aid. Certainly not publicly. They may even cut him off personally and socially. So this statement that he made which I don't know if he's apologized for or what, I don't really know the context, completely disqualifies Mike Kelsey from being a pastor, okay? My next big takeaway on this is this is what happens when prominent yet gullible white pastors buy the cultural lie of standpoint epistemology. So I talked about standpoint epistemology where it's like your way of gaining and transferring knowledge comes from your standpoint and culture, but these guys like David Platt and Matt Chandler's kind of said some things like this. And there are some other prominent pastors. Uh, Lucas Miles talks about a lot of, of, of them in the book, uh, uh, Woke Jesus. You know, these people that went full Black Lives Matter. They posted the black square. They never repudiated the organization Black Lives Matter while pretending whilst that saying Black Lives Matter was just an innocuous statement. All these people, they've bought into the lie that because this person looks a certain way, they will be able to do the job in a particular way. And again, I go back to the egregious comments made by Matt Chandler, again, one of my favorite pastors of all time. I've never listened to more sermons by any one pastor more than I've listened to Matt Chandler, and I still listen to him to this day, even though I I can't wait to actually ask him about these comments. But whenever he said at MLK 50, when he said that if it's, uh, you know, between a uh, Anglo eight and a black seven, I'm going to hire the black seven. An absolutely indefensible comment, even in context. But whenever you go beyond racial reconciliation, you get to racial grievance. That's the next exit on the highway. You're on racial reconciliation, and then you get off on racial grievance. When you buy into this grievance culture, like apparently David Platt has done, he said some ridiculous things the last few years, you will ignore comments like this when you're hiring somebody. Because again, I don't know Mike Kelsey. I've never heard him, you know, provide a sermon. I don't know how he counsels, you know, couples. I don't know how good he is at the the bedside of somebody that's dying in the hospital or if he even does that. I have no reference point for him at all. But these comments were very revealing about how he actually feels. And you could tell by him saying like, oh, you know, the thing that keeps me from doing that is reminding myself that we have so many white brothers and sisters that are doing the, the work that I like. And, and we just keep focusing on that. Because the, the question I would have for Mike Kelsey is, okay, well, what if you're surrounded by a bunch of white brothers and sisters that stop doing the things that you deem appropriate? Are you going to torch them? Because that's what you said you were going to do. Or, sorry, let me, be, let me be precise. That's what you said is hard for you to keep from doing. Because you have this desire inside of you to, according to you, torch all white people, in particular white evangelicals and Christians. How am I supposed to take that? Because I get it. Sometimes quotes are taken out of context. Sometimes the headline doesn't reflect anything that's in the article. I get it. Help me understand this one. 
So if Mike Kelsey's listening to this, doubt it. Or if anybody that knows Mike Kelsey is listening to this, give me a defense. Give me a defense for this. But then I want you to insert any other group into his commentary. It's difficult for me sometimes not to just torch all black people, torch all Latinos, torch all Asians, torch all women, torch all gays, torch all Jews, torch all, insert one. Because you'll find the one that, you know, makes your heart start beating a little bit faster, get your blood pressure elevated. Help me understand. It's a completely indefensible comment, and I don't know why more, more people aren't talking about it. All right, guys, that wraps up the show for today. Before we get out of here, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So again, guys, check out Primal Beef. That'll be in the show notes. We are a donation-based ministry. Hook us up there. And then also the cigars, guys. The cigars are so good. There is a man or someone, maybe even a gal in your life, that could really enjoy a three-pack or even a full box of 20. Make sure you can check that all out there. And then all the references to everything I talked about in the show is also in the show notes here as well. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>